Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Ryan Kashani, one of the hosts of the Latin American Studies Channel. Since September of 2014, much of Mexico has been gripped by the tragic story of the Iguala Kid, the abduction of 43 school teachers from Ayotzinapa in the state of Guerrero. Presumed a tragedy of a massive scale, the details remain unclear. The disappearance of the students has brought popular attention to the violence of modern-day Mexico. And the new book by Alexander Avina, Specters of Revolution, Peasant Guerrillas, in the Cold War Mexican countryside, which was published in, by Oxford in 2014, not only chronicles the mobilization of Guerrero's rural peasantry, but also details the brutal tactics of the counterinsurgency waged by the Mexican state in the 1960s. Spectres of Revolution is about local experiences with violence and state authority in Guerrero in the 60s. It is, in part, about the direct action of campesinos during a moment of what seems to be real optimism about the opportunities for inclusion within the state and the nation. Revolutions and revolutionary politics are not only about the social of Vinia rights, they are also deeply personal. As such, this book is about the construction and costs of state terror on individuals, families, and communities, on historical memory and collective visions of the nation, and on engagement with social mobilization animated by local, political, and social relationships in Mexico in the Cold War era. At a time when so many are questioning the nature and scale of violence in the nation, this remarkable book offers a critical account of the tactics of the dirty war in Mexico that many believe persist today. Hi, Alex. Hi, Ryan. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. So this is a fascinating book, and it's a timely book, um, and it pushes us to think about Mexico in the 1960s and to think about violence in all sorts of new ways. Um, but I thought maybe what we could begin with is, um, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about your own background and sort of uh, the origin of this project and how it, and how it started. Um, in the acknowledgments, I love acknowledgments. Um, but you give a you have this great line about noting how your parents were the first historians you encountered. So I wonder if you could talk a little about your own uh, your own background and a bit about how this project came to be. Sure. Um, so my parents are were um, undocumented migrants from from Michoacan, from the the hot lands of Michoacan, and um, my father has one year of formal education. My mother got through sixth grade, but. When they got to the United States and they raised my siblings and I, they were really um, bent on ensuring that we remain, quote unquote, Mexican. So they were always trying to um, very typically typical, typical immigrant mentality to a certain extent that uh, we're just we're kind of bypassing or we're just kind of existing in the United States, but we're really Mexican. Um, so one of the ways that they try to do that was to fill our household with the history of Mexico as they remembered it. And as they received it, both in school and through popular media in Mexico, 
through Televisa of all places, right? Um, through telenovelas, which is kind of interesting. Um, so was a, I grew up in a really nationalistic household filled with stories of um, very interesting interpretations of people like Zapata and Villa and then more local people, at least local in terms of Michoacán, like, like Cárdenas. Um, and then even um, stories within um, La Tierra Caliente, Michoacán, where my family's from. So I grew up hearing these like Hatfield and McCoy stories of family <laughs> wiping themselves out in Michoacán. Um, Late, so my love of history began through them, right? So for them, they thought that, that knowing history would allow us to remain culturally Mexican in a foreign land. Um, so primarily through history and through the preservation of, of Spanish language, right? They're, they're really strict about us speaking Spanish at home. As soon as we got home from school, it was all Spanish, um, very little TV in English. Um, if we watched The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, we had to match that with something from Televisa because we had one of these huge satellite dishes that could beam in channels from from Mexico City. Um, but as I, as when I got to college, you know, I, I started learning about from, from a great, my mentor in, as an undergraduate was Dr. Mijna Santiago, historian of Mexican labor historian. And, uh, you know, I started to realize that the versions of Mexican history I received at home um, were essentially the versions of history that the Bri was articulating <laughs> after 1940. Right. So you can imagine the type of conversations I had when I'd go home um, during uh during spring break, for instance, right, we would gather into these, uh, I'd have a very Marxist rendition of, of Mexican history and, and me trying to convince two devoutly Catholic um, migrants from Mexico about how they were wrong um, in, in their renditions of Mexican history. Um, but it, in either case, it, it's, I just grew up in a house that was filled with, with their, their, these historical memories, with um, these popular interpretations of Mexican history from two people who, who had very little formal education, but they they imbued and they received the political project of the PRI, right? That the, the later as an academic I learned and read about. Um, in terms of Guerrero, I just, anytime we'd go to Mexico to visit um, our parents, my grand, my grandfather in particular was a great storyteller. So I, I heard about Lucio Cabañas from him, um, mm-hmm. but more in the cast of like a, a bad man, right? Like if he would listen to the radio in the 70s and hear about how the bandolero or the robavacas, cabañas, um, was, you know, doing things in Guerrero. And, and he remembered the day that, that Lucio was killed. Right? And he remembered feeling sad because for him, even though Lucio was a bad man, at least he had, um, you know, the, the, the bravery to stand up to the Mexican state. Um, and then I also, in terms of Guerrero, uh, my father grew up with, with a guy from Guerrero, who was nicknamed El Caliman. And, and so I, my dad had this idea that people from Guerrero were the, the badasses of Mexico. Um, he would say, you don't mess with the people of Guerrero because they fight with machetes, not just their fists, right? So I had this idea of like, wow, like the people of Guerrero are just these amazing <laughs> fighters. Um, it, so I grew up with these stories that kind of, in, 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 you know, now it's kind of weird to look back on it, but I was getting pushed toward Guerrero um, from a very early age. Uh, from a variety, from these, from these uh, organic storytellers. Um, and once I got to college, I remember I did a paper on the 1968 student massacre in Tlatelolco, and that led me to a couple references to these guerrilla movements that, that it was very little work had been done on. And, and uh, I went to grad school thinking that was it. People kept telling me, you can't do this project because there's no documents. And uh, from my perspective, the one good thing Vicente Fox did was declassify these documents. Um, and they made my my, my project feasible. But it's weird to think back now that Guerrero has always been 
in my life in some way, shape, or form. And it's kind of weird to think about now that I ended up writing a book about the state and its people. Because it was so a part of, of how you thought of, of this place in this um, time period? Yeah, and it's, it's – I mean, I, there's a lot of similarities from – I mean, the book is about the Guerre, about Guerrero, but it's really mostly about the coastal Guerrero, right? So where these guerrilla movements emerged. But there's a lot of similarities between coastal Guerrero, I think culturally, with – these Tierra Caliente of Michoacán, where my family's from, um, this idea that these people are ungovernable, that they're indomitable, that they resist state authority, that they like to fight. Um, so it, there's like some cultural connections in that way as well, I guess. But it just these I, it, 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 these my household was filled with these stories of bad men, right? These these bandits that. Um, you know, it's, there's something similar in uh, like Robin Kelly talks about this for African-American popular culture, right? Like this idea of bad men who stood up and resisted against state authority, um, you know, and that's what you value in them. Uh, the fact that they were resisting state authority as somehow some sort of foreign entity. Um, and then it also didn't help that I had uncles who were narco traffickers, right? So then that idea of the bad man was, you know, very close to me as well. Um and I think that's what really led me to to want to want to look at, at some of these movements. So that's, that's interesting. I want to ask about um, somewhere in there, in your own understanding, this things shifted um, from sort of just talking about these these bad dudes from Guerrero to thinking about Guerrero in a global context, or at least the Cold War context, right? Yes. No, I think once, um, definitely by the time I got to college and then I started the, the project in grad school as, as my dissertation, I mean, I, it's um, really starting to look at these movements in, a, in uh, trying to fashion a narrative, historical narrative of these movements in a way that was um, completely contradicting what the PRI was saying about these movements. Uh, so, it, it, so it started on a personal level, right? As I, as I mentioned before, me going against my parents and their Priista histories that they had been, in, you know, brainwashing me with when I was younger. Um, but I think trying to create, even just trying to assemble a, a timeline and chronology, right? Because these movements had been so buried um, physically. I mean, these people, hundreds of these people were buried and disappeared. Um, so definitely trying to understand uh, these movements, these two guerrilla movements that emerged in the 60s and the 70s, one, as part of a larger trajectory of political mobilization, that, that after certain experiences that they had with the PRI and the Mexican state, they, they decided to adopt armed struggle as a political option when they didn't see any other feasible option, um, you know, feasible in the sense that they weren't going to die. Um, and that they could achieve some sort of redress or reform. I mean, it radicalized to the point of them trying to overthrow their intent. Their goal was to overthrow the the PRI and establish their own versions of socialist government governance in Mexico. But um, really trying to assemble a chronology and then trying to understand these two guerrilla movements on their own terms, the way they articulated their political projects, um, was, I think, what I tried to do. And it was also the most challenging aspect of this project. Well, I think the research here is pretty impressive. It's, it is. I, you can count me as one of the people who, who initially thought, how can this work be done? Um, and it's done and it's brilliant. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, um, the research, uh, which is not just historical, but also deals with, you know, oral history and historical memory and things like that too. Sure. Thank you. Um, 
Well, as I mentioned before, right, the, the opening of these archives of the, the, the AFAS, the Federal Directorate um, the documents, or so millions of these documents, essentially Mexico's version of the FBI, um, their documents and then the Mexican military documents that have been transported to the AGN and the DGIPS documents. These, these documents allowed me to kind of reconstruct the, just the basic chronology of events, obviously from a state-centric perspective, but, you know, as we... Supposedly, we all learn in grad school to read against the grain. That that they tell you they tell us to read against the grain, but they don't necessarily tell us how to do that. Um, it allowed me to assemble a basic chronology, but it also allowed me to really understand the optic of the state. Right, they're looking at these movements from the perspective of national security, um, and they're also looking at these movements from the perspective of political legitimacy, or in other words, the government was going to lose their own sort of political legitimacy in. in in the face of these uh, revolutionary challengers. Um, the challenges in terms of doing this archival research were mainly centered in Galeria Uno, right? Where the DFS records were, where this almost mythical person ran the room, um, Mr. Fabio Capello, who had been the official archivist for the, for the DFS. This, this um, security apparatus was disbanded in 1985. When all the documents get sent to the AGN, he's sent along as well with his own um, special, quote-unquote, archivists who were political policemen. Um, so, you know, my, my very first experience with Capello, who was about five foot two, but this is one of the scariest men I've ever met in my life. Um, my first experience with me telling him what I wanted to research um, in Guerrero, he basically got it out of me that it was really the guerrilla movements I was looking after, trying to look for. And then he proceeds to ask me, well, are you from Guerrero? And he asked me in a really threatening way. And uh, this was one of the, <laughs> this is one of the only moments in my life where I was like proudly an, an American, right? Like apostrophe <laughs> M E. Like I was like, no, 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 I'm from the United States. You know, uh, uh, I'm just trying to do a, a dissertation project. And um, after that, and then I was able to name drop some names, uh, uh, I, I brought in Jockey, Johnny Walker bottles a couple of times, and <laughs> that greased the wheels. Um, the the I, I went into this archive thinking I'm going to find all the secrets, and these classified documents are going to possess all the secrets, and that's not how bureaucracies work. Right? I mean, these documents were produced for policing; they were produced for surveillance, but they weren't produced for uh, accountability. Um, they weren't produced to keep track of the bodies, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, so that was one of the challenges, right? Thinking, I'm going to go in there, I'm going to find all these hidden secrets. And to a certain extent, I did, but not the type of secrets I was expecting to find. It was it, it, They tended to be very mundane and banal. Um, or if they were like these spectacular things, they were couched in very bureaucratic terms. So in the military records, when they talk about people being detained, they talk about, they're actually referred to as packages, and they referred to as these, we have four packages who are going to be revised, oh, wow. which, you know, you translate that into, you know, into, into what that really means is you have four people who are going to be interrogated and most likely tortured. And, and a lot of them will be disappeared. Um, but even so, but a lot of it was missing. Right. And that's why I turned to oral history. I figured, you know, one of the, um, and I remember Marjorie Becker, who was my advisor at USC, she's an oral historian, right? So she was instrumental in helping me become I don't think I'm an oral historian like she is, but I, I try to do it. She really helped me with this methodology, and she'd always tell me in grad school that John Womack, his one failing of the Zapata and the Mexican Revolution book that we all have to read, is that he didn't do oral history. He had all these old Zapatistas alive, but because he didn't validate that as a form of, um, as a text, 
he didn't do it, right? So I knew that I had to capture as much as possible that that part of the story. Um, and that involved, you know, trying to get into this really um, closed community of ex-guerrilla fighters in Mexico um, who in many ways are still divided politically in the ways that they were in the 60s right. and 70s. Um, so part of this involved me getting on a bus sponsored by the PRD. <laughs> a week, I went from Mexico City to um, to Chihuahua um, with a group of 40 ex-guerrillas, and I was with them on that bus for a week. I didn't know anyone else on that bus. I just got on. Um, it was an amazing experience, and that only gave me entrance into that world of, of now most of them are activists, but... It gave them. It gave me entrance into that worldview that they possessed in the sixties and seventies, thinking that they could change the world with a rifle. Um, and that was really interesting. And the best stories I got on that trip, obviously, were the ones that they said, "Don't, don't tell them. Right? Don't, don't let this get into your book." But it helped me try to understand, like, why they took this ultimate gamble, right, into the the ultimate jump into the abyss mm-hmm. to create some sort of a revolutionary struggle to overthrow the Mexican government. Well, and you do a. a- you you do a nice job, and we're gonna. I want to come to this at the end about how how important this is for people today, and how you know it sort of it goes on and exists, and not just in memory, but as I think you're detailing here, and sort of even in lived experience. So, but before getting to some of that, I so I want to deal with so just some just parts of the book, okay. Um, in particular, and maybe talk a little bit more about Guerrero and the legacies of rebellion. Um, can you talk about? The mobilization of Guerrero's rural population, and you, you note that rural communities um, carried the rebellious history with them, which I just think is fascinating. And so what were, what were some of the legacies of rebelliousness that came to the forefront in the 1960s? Sure. So the, that idea of people carrying the rebellious history, I totally borrowed that from uh, Wickham Crowley, who has a, has a great anecdote about Fidel Castro in, in Cuba in the 50s. Um, so any most historians of Mexico tend to um, when we look at Guerrero, Guerrero's kind of like one of these frontiers, right? These inner frontiers where it's like the, the lawless region, the, the wild region. But um, you know, something that I, that I that something that I learned doing my research in Guerrero, even secondary source literature research, was that at every in every grand episode of, of post colonial Mexican history, communities from Guerreros were involved in some way, shape, or form, in decisive ways, right? So um, Peter um, the work I totally forget it, Guardino, Peter Guardino's work, his first book on Guerrero was like uh, instrumental and was vital. Like I couldn't have done that first chapter in my book without without his research, right? Because he does such a good job of showing how these um, campesino peasant communities in Guerrero participated before in the independence movement, during the independence movement, all the way up until the 1850s, right? So totally going against this idea that um, these, these, these peasant communities are somehow these autarkic, closed communities that have no idea of the nation, right? So um, there's this constant mobilization in the 19th century against what these peasant communities perceive as authoritarianism from the central government. Um, they're articulating their own visions of social justice in very 19th century terms, so for them, this involved low taxes. This involved the right to vote, um, way, uh, universal mail enfranchisement. Um, this involved defending liberal or federalist constitutions most of the time. Um, so anytime there was some sort of despot in the mid, for instance, Santa Ana, the, the zombie of Mexican history, right, kept coming back. Um, you know, they were these 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 uh, multiracial campesino communities in in Guerrero were always involved in the mobilizations against against what they perceived to be 
authoritarianism from from the center from Mexico City. Um, so I think what I try to do in, um, in the first chapter is try to, to to draw out some of these uh, legacies of rebellion, right? So this idea of local democracy being respected from the center from from Mexico City, the idea of social justice, the idea that um, their alternative imaginings of the nation have some sort of space within the, the you know the halls of high politics in Mexico City. Um, where it's, I think, really apparent is when um, the way Zapatismo takes hold in certain parts of Guerrero during the Mexican Revolution. Um, so Lucio Cabaña's great uncles were Zapatistas, right? So they fought in Morelos, they fought in Guerrero, and then they bring back these Zapatista ideas to the to the coast of Guerrero, and they continue to fight, I think, small, low-scale guerrilla warfare in the 1920s and 30s against landed elites for these ideas of local democracy um, and, and agrarian reform. And these are some of these things are popping up again in the 1960s in different form. Um, or do, I think the form might be similar, but the content obviously is different because it's a different time. Um, they, they might be quote-unquote modernized to a certain extent. So, so much like uh, much like Tanalis Padilla's work on, mm-hmm. on Rubén Jaramillo, right? Um, Rubén Jaramillo's ideas and, and demands in the 1940s, even though he's a Zapatista, those demands in the 40s are different from what Zapata was asking for in the 1910s. Um, but I mean, the, the the idea of having a say in the way the nation is imagined and created, the idea of enfranchisement, the the the, the meaning the meaning of voting and actually meaning something, um, this idea of social justice and local democracy, I think, are the things that come up again in the 1960s, and and to a certain extent, they're coming up again now, right? And we can talk about that toward the end. But this idea of these uh, community police forces in Guerrero, I mean, to a certain extent, I think that's a manifest an armed manifestation of. of the protection of local democracy. Can this would be a good place to talk about Hilario um, Vasquez, Lucio Cabanas in particular, and where they fit? I mean, you you frame them as um, as organic intellectuals and peasant guerrillas, and uh, what you call them political polyglots at one point. Yeah. And I think these are fascinating ways to think about um, who might have. But, and maybe you heard this in your family that these are, you know, what are these guys? These are, you know, these are rogues. These are what are yeah. we, thugs, you know, maybe we call them today, something like that. But you frame them quite differently. So maybe, can you talk about where they fit and their significance here? You already mentioned that they're, you know, um, connected to Zapatismo, but really transforming it. Yeah. So I think the the important thing to note about both Vasquez and, and Cabañas is that they both come from campesino families in Guerrero. And they're both school teachers, right? So I think that has... They never; these two guys never cease being school teachers to a certain extent. Even when they be, eventually become guerrilla leaders, they're still school teachers in a way, right? So in rural Mexico, school teachers occupy, and even to this day, you can make this argument: school teachers occupy a really prominent role, right? They're the local intellectual; they're the organic intellectual. They're in the '60s, especially. They're like the one person in town who can write a petition. They're the one who can translate something from. Uh, a campesino who wants to draft some sort of petition for agrarian reform, it's the local school teacher who's going to be doing that work. So the, the, this this fact that they're both from campesino families, they're both school teachers who have an organic relationship to these communities in Guerrero, I think we can't understand their activity and their performance as guerrilla leaders, first as a social activist and then as guerrilla leaders, without noting that. Like that fundamentally their campesino origin and the fact that their school teachers are really influential in, term, in, in terms of how they develop as social activists and then later guerrilla leaders. Um, I, I like the idea of the political polyglots because they can speak different political vocabularies, right? So Lucio Cabañas 
Um, he was made, as he himself said, he was made in Ayotzinapa, right? This radical, uh, normal rural. Um, he became a member of the, of the Mexican Communist Party, right? So on the one hand, he could speak as um, a Stalinist <laughs> uh, Mexican Communist Party interpretation of Marxism, right? Which is, uh, it starts to change in the 1670s, right? But he can speak that language, but he can also speak the language of Zapatismo as it was interpreted in the coast of Guerrero. And the way it's interpreted in the coast of Guerrero was we, the rich versus the poor, the rich, the rich elites versus the poor. Um, same with Vasquez. Vasquez, be, Vasquez actually became a teacher in the Normal Nacional, which was in Mexico City, but he never lost contact with campesino communities in Guerrero. So he was actually in the 50s, in the middle of all this really vibrant political activities that are going on in Mexico City, with the student strikes at the IPN. Um, it's it, someone called, I can't forget, maybe it was Patrick Iver who calls Mexico City like the crossroads of the world, right, in 1950s, right, because everyone is going through Mexico City. Um, the Soviet Union has a huge presence. The U.S. has a huge presence. The Global South will have a huge presence in Mexico City. But at the same time, Hernando Vasquez is, is living in this really cosmopolitan, global uh, political context, but he can still speak the political language of, of campesino communities and the Costa Chica of Guerrero. Um, and I think the, the, the common factor for both of these guys is that they're school teachers. Um, and they're, I think, I remember interviewing Genaro Vasquez as second in command and Genaro Vasquez's um, so, uh, sister-in-law, right? And they're all teachers and they were all, te- they, they kept talking to me about John Dewey, right? And it's like, <laughs> that they, John Dewey, right? So they followed that really progressive model of, of education, right? So when they, and you can see that when they interact with campesino communities, when they're in the mountains of Guerrero, trying to convince these communities, hey, you know, support us in this potentially suicidal endeavor to open overthrow the Mexican government. Um, another interesting thing that these Hernando uh, Vasquez people mentioned to me as well is the, is the role of um, Spanish Republican exiles who were their teachers at the Normal Nacional too. So they're getting a really another another political language, right, um, from these many radical uh, Spanish Republicans that, that fled Franco and established themselves in Mexico City. And then they, in turn, um, formed teachers like Hernando like Vasquez and, and, and the leadership core of his um, but they, they become social activists. They're both really inspired by a, by a more radical interpretation of the Mexican Revolution. They believe in the Mexican Constitution, right? So that's the basis of their political activism before they become guerrilla leaders. And it's really their radicalization starts to take shape and form um, when, they can, when they experience personally persecution at the hands of police forces, but then when their movements that they're a part of start to suffer um, instances of, of quotidian and more spectacular forms of, of state terror. Is it, is it their ability to speak to these different groups um, a large part of why um, they're so dangerous, but not only just that, but why even their own memory, memory of them is so dangerous? I mean, you start the book with Cabanas and sort of his, um, you know, his clandestine burial, uh, uh, you know, that they try to erase, erase him, but also any memory of him, correct? Is that- yeah, I mean, there was no opportunity for the Mexican government to ever co-opt their memory. Like they, they, there was no opportunity for them to defang them like they did with Zapata. I mean, so even, even Villa, right? Villa wasn't defanged and co-opted until the sixties and seventies, if I remember correctly. Um, the only time you've seen a Mexican politician try to, um, use one of these two guys is when I, I, I can't, I think it was his first or second presidential run for AMLO, for Lopez Obrador. He talked about Genaro Vasquez. Mm. Um, 
But these guys, Lucio especially, Lucio Cabanas remains so controversial and so and so radical in Guerrero that they continue to try to bury his memory, right? So there's um, Daniel Enrique Osorno, this wonderful journalist who wrote a book on the Cartel de Sinaloa. And he talks about how in 2007, he goes to the capital city of Guerrero and he goes to these stands, um, these vendors, and they're selling shirts of Zapata and, you know, these revolutionary images. And he asks one of the women, vendor women, and says, you know, why don't you guys sell any uh, shirts uh, of Lucio? She says, no, if we sell those shirts, then the next day we're going to have police here asking us questions. Right. And I saw that in the documents a year after the death of Lucio Cabañas in 1974. A year later, you have political police worrying about the appearance of his T-shirts for sale in Acapulco in 1975. The policing of not only do they kill him and bury him clandestinely, but then they also have to police his memory. Because, and you see this in the history of Guerrero, that memory, that idea continues to inspire. Um, Because the conditions in Guerrero remain more or less the same. Right. Well, so what I'm also hearing you say is that you're not writing a screenplay and pitching it to Televisa or something. No. That's not coming up. Well, but also, I mean, by the 1970s, um, these are well-worn paths in Latin America, right? The power of the icon. Yeah. Um, That's fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about so um, about violence? Then I want to I want to sort of flesh out a little bit more about um, the nature of violence, uh, maybe the caballero regime that they're in part responding to. Sure. So something I tried to do in this in this book was to show that there's multiple types of violence that shaped, um, you know, to quote Greg Grannon, the will of the will to act of these Guerrero guerrillas. Um, so not just these spectacular explosions of military violence um, exercised against unarmed um, dissidents or demonstrators, like hap- like what happened in Chipancingo in December 1960 or in Iguala in December 1962, um, but to also look at poverty as a form of violence or to look at um, the allocation of resources by the PRI after 1940 away from the countryside and more to the urban centers as a form of violence. Um, you know, there's this there's this great uh, Chilean rapper, Suberso, who talks about um, it's never an issue of scarcity and resources. It's an issue of class struggle. Mm-hmm. Right. So in a way, I wanted to show that in this book, right, that violence takes the form of not just bullets and guns and bayonets, but that economic theories, um, the allocation of resources, um, rapid industrialization. That's a form of violence that becomes exercised on the countryside. It's just it's a dark matter type of violence that we don't see. Um, it's structural violence, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. Like, structural violence. And, you know, for us in our contemporary times, that's almost a radical idea. It wasn't in the 60s, right? You have liberation theologian priests saying, look, like poverty is a form of violence. Um, you know, violence is already part of the context, um, whether we recognize it or not. It's the dark matter. For us, you know, it's for a variety of reasons that we can get into. I mean, it, violence is. Um, not that violence it violence aren't even drones right violence is certain forms of religious extremism um so in this book i try to show how these multiple types of violences influence people to to take that jump into the abyss that's called revolution um you know what would what would ultimately motivate hundreds thousands of people to support a, a movement to try to overthrow the mexican government right so on the one hand trying to look at the structural violence but also looking at military violence, and then looking at cacique violence. Um, Guerrero is the quintessential land of caciques. Um, it still is. 
uh, it still is the province of caciques, right? So they're exercising their own type of violence in Guerrero. Political strongmen. Yeah, political and economic strong. Right. Who really hold authority over these locales. And they reproduce that that type of power generationally. So in Guerrero, you have the Figueroas, right? The Figueroas figure prominently in my book. Mm -hmm. Um, They're still there. Mm -hmm. They have a grandson now, so who's trying to, you know, assume some sort of powerful political position. He was actually going to run to be the uh, mayor of Acapulco, um, which is then the springboard to become governor of of Guerrero. Mm -hmm. Um, But internal PRI struggles kind of knocked him out of the way, which is interesting. Um, So you also have that in Guerrero. And and this is one of the the weaknesses, I think, in my book that I didn't really get into is you have caciques fighting against one another, too. Um, And I didn't I focus more on a cacique versus campesino type of conflict. Um, But you also have intra-cacique conflicts as well that have a long history in Guerrero, these powerful families going against one another. Well, and, the, and specific acts of violence feed into that, right? I mean, so yeah. with, when we talk about violence and terror, that some of these campaigns, you know, that where campesinos get caught maybe in the middle or as the victims are also about the clashes between these different strongmen. Oh, yeah. no, And you have, I mean, it, by the time we get to the guerrilla movements in the late 60s, um, there is a military document in which a general is talking about arming the Torreblanca family mm-hmm. as a way to go against the Cabana fa- Cabanas family because they're longtime rivals, right? So this 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 type of um this type of uh, ronda, you know, the ronda strategy that we see in Peru during the Shining Path days. I mean, you see it, you kind of see it manifest itself in Guerrero during the early during the late sixties, early seventies. Um, so trying again, so trying to understand these multiple types of violence, un- uncovering types of violence that we didn't know existed, or 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 shedding light on, you know, the, the execution of 15 campesinos in 1965 in the Tierra Caliente region, right? Um, or looking at, for instance, in the Caballero Aburto regime, according to one newspaper editor from Acapulco, this, guy, this guy's regime was, was responsible for killing thousands of people. We, but we don't know. Right? We, we can't get a body count. Um, they were either thrown, they were most likely thrown into this huge hole that lie, that's, that Pozo Melendez, if I remember correctly, that lies between Taxco and Iguala. Um, it's now since covered, and I actually drove past it uh, when I was doing research on the ground in 2007. And it's just this mass, now it's covered with concrete, but I guess in the 60s it was a massive hole in the ground. Mm-hmm. And people who were killed in this or disappeared by the governor would be thrown into this pit. Mm-hmm. Um, so just trying to get a body count, it, it was... Uh, was also an impulse in this book, right? Try to understand violence in that way, um, which in the end ended up being impossible even trying to get a body count. Well, so much of what we, you know, well, a couple of things. One, I mean, your book, your book brings Mexico right to the center of how we've talked about many other parts of Latin America, right? How we've, yes. talked, we've known about Peru and Chile and Argentina, right? And increasingly Brazil. But Mexico always had the benefit of, you know, the miracle. Yeah. Right, it was Mexico, you know, miraculous Mexico, and then suddenly '68 happens. Right, something happens in Mexico City. Yeah, well, there, there, there is a Mexican exceptionalism, right? I mean, that's what it, in Cold War, that's what it was, right? Like there was a revolutionary government in power. So on on the one level, how could there be revolutionaries in Mexico if there's already a revolutionary government in power? Uh, and two, Mexico allowed so many exiles from the rest of Latin America, right? That that, that fortified their image as this like non-aligned progressive government. Um, I think the difference between Mexico and some of these other countries is that 
the type of terror that Mexico exercised was really limited to the local and the regional level. Right. Whereas in other countries, you, you, you saw it fully in the, at the national level. The PRI was really good in um, their different type of containment strategies of keeping movements like the Lucio Cabañas movement um, corralled, essentially, in Coastal Guerrero and not letting that movement spread. Um, and, and, you know, in a place like Guerrero, where it's so geographically isolated, primarily because it's a land of mountains um, and there's no roads, um, it was easy to do that. They could wipe out these people um, and not really hear, and the rest of Latin America would not hear anything about it. Right. And that's, you know, to some extent, that was, you know, what the case of Guatemala early mid sixties, late sixties, seventies, yeah. right? Yep. Um, so I, I, there's an optimism though, I think in your work, uh, I want to, I want to get to that and talk about, um, the 1960s and particularly there's a moment of, of what you, I think you frame as true democracy, um, where, where there's a, a civic movement where it's socially heterogeneous, um, where things are changing in Guerrero. In part, I, it seems to be because of the removal of Caballero. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm not quite right on that. But can you talk a little about that? Sure. Yeah. What happens there uh, with this sort of true democratic moment? Sure. So the, this this govern this guy, this general who gets appointed governor in 1957, Caballero Burto, um, he he ran such a violent and nepotistic administration. I mean, you see that in the documents of DFS. They're highly critical of him. That he spawns this. Um, heterogeneous uh, civic movement against them, right? You have small business people, you have PRI bureaucrats, you have campesinos, you have workers who create this broad civic movement in 1959, 1960 to get him removed from power. The whole idea was to get the federal Senate, the one body in Mexico that has the power to remove a governor, um, to see how bad of a governor and how violent of a governor this guy was and, and, and to try to get him removed. Um, so you have this, and this is where Genaro Vasquez emerges as a prominent uh, social activist. He ends up becoming leader of this movement, of the civic movement, which is called the ACG, Asociación Cívica Guerrerense. Um, Lucio makes an appearance because he's the leader of the students at Ayotzinapa, and they participate in this movement as well. Um, so you have, you have rural school teachers, you have rural students, you have housewives, you have campesinos. Pretty much everybody in Guerrero, except for certain caciques, um, are against this governor and the type of administration that he ran. Um, that leads us to December 30th, 1960, where uh, there's a confrontation in Chipancingo between these, these demonstrators and the Mexican military. Um, dozens of these demonstrators are massacred by the Mexican military. Um, this finally pushes the Senate to remove Caballero Aburto from power. And you have this space from, 19, you have the, the appointment of an interim governor, but you have this space in 1961 where these ACG activists managed to take over several or dozens of municipal governments in, in Guerrero. And uh, some of the people that I read about in the archive and, and talked to remember this moment as a moment of true democracy. This idea that the people actually took hold of their own municipal governments. It wasn't some sort of um, appointee from the governor. His governor tended to appoint gunslingers as municipal presidents, which is never a good idea. Uh, we see that now, right? Um <laughs> So the, there's this there's this brief space where where um, people remember it in Guerrero as a moment of true democracy, where they controlled their municipal government, government, where they applied the rule of law, um, where they applied the constitution um, to their own municipalities. Um, and it's again going back to the 19th century. It's this idea of local self-rule, 
this local self-democratic rule where everyone has a say, well, most everyone, right? There's still patriarchal hues in this, but um, has a say in how uh, they're going to lead and the rule their everyday lives. Um, but that moment um, is ephemeral, right? It's fleeting. But it, it, I think part of this, by looking at, the, at these guerrilla movements is, is just one more moment of a long history of mobilizations, you, you have the adding of layers, right? And I think that's one of the things I'm trying to get across in this book. Each of these mobilizations adds a new layer. Um, and the people that, that come later have essentially an archive of political moments, ideas, tactics that they can draw from. And, and Guerrero is an extremely rich, rich area. So this moment of true democracy becomes really influential in 62 when the ACG becomes an opposition political party and they run candidates um, at the, for, for governor and for municipal presidents. And then um, I want to sort of go to pick up a little bit more on, on, on this archive, essentially thinking about memory. I think that's really fascinating that people are able to draw on that. And maybe in your own sort of conversations, maybe it's on the week-long bus ride, but um, how do people – how do they engage on that? Is this? I mean, do they talk about it in you know in the plazas? Is this is this everyday conversation? Um, I think I think it's an everyday conversation. I think one of the one of the one of the consequences of the 1960 civic movement was that it created its own public spaces where people from all parts of the state congregated in Chipancingo and they talked. Right? They conversed. Um, they remembered what happened in the 1920s and 30s. They remember Cárdenas. Cárdenas is a referent, right? They're always talking about Cárdenas um, at the moment where things were different. Um, And to a certain extent, they were. Um, A lot of the ejidos in Coastal Guerrero, a lot of the coffee-producing ejidos in Coastal Guerrero um, were created by decree by Cárdenas as one of his last acts as president. Um, So, yeah, it's primarily through the the articulation and spreading of oral traditions. Um, in, in public spaces, in public squares, in in workspaces, in in the in the in the fields, in the coffee, in the coffee fee, in the coffee huertas, or in the copra, the coconut palm uh, groves. Um, there's also another thing that I that that becomes evident is that in these oral traditions, they're structured not only by past memories of mobilization, but they're structured by past memories of violence. Right. So you have people talking about how. Their grandfather was killed by a you know a, a gunslinger of a local cacique. Um, you know, a, your last name demonstrates a certain um, almost political place within Guerrero, which make if if that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you have a certain last name that automatically like identifies you as a revoltoso, as a rebellious one, or as a as a cacique, or as someone who's subservient to a cacique. Um, so a lot of times you don't even need the conversation. You just the last names and the families. And this and this adds to um, the sort of uh, implicit nature of this mobilization. You have the you quote one of your chapters. You quote um, from a former guerrilla uh, guerrilla um, that there was. You start the chapter that you just talked about that there was no other way. Yeah. In order to break out of this, is there had to have been change in mobilization. Can you talk a little bit more about sort of that mobilization and what are, you know, you talk about it as divine violence, campesino style at one point. Which is- yeah, so the um, the woman who I quoted when she said there was no other way, she's, she's talking about how um, after the ACG ran this opposition political campaign in 62, it ends again 
in violence exercise against these ACG activists. Hernando Vasquez has to go on the run. He ends up moving to northern Mexico because he's being persecuted. Um, that's where that Politica article comes in, right? Terror and Guerrero is in 1963 in the aftermath of this political campaign. Um, it, it, those type of things are lead people to the conclusion, the same conclusion that this woman, uh, the sister-in-law of um, Conchita, of, of Genaro Vasquez, that there was no other way to achieve the redress of grievances and reform, right? Uh, up, up until um, throughout the 1960 movement and the 62 movement, the Mexican constitution is a cornerstone of their, of their mobilization, right? That's what they're citing. That's what allows them to coalesce. That's become their... That's where they're drawing inspiration and, and actual laws from. Um, but it's the, the constant application of terror, both everyday forms and then these like massacres that, that leads people um, like Conchita to conclude that there's no other way. Um, and Conchita was one of these activists who from after 63 was going to different cities and meeting with campesinos trying to teach them socialism. Um, they had a textbook called the ABC of Socialism. It's an old school text in the early 20th century. Um, and they would have these reading circles with campesinos, and she's a school teacher too. Um, so they'd have these conversations and, and uh, really fruitful conversations of what socialism meant um, or promised, according to these uh, campesino communities. Um, but there's a, the question that we get to by the by the late '60s is um, this idea of organized revolutionary violence that's going to be directed by a group of guerrilleros. Or is, are we going to see something that Walter Benjamin referred to as divine violence, which is just like this bloodletting, this class-based bloodletting? So in May of 1967, you have this massacre of, of people in Atoyac de Álvarez. Um, apparently, Lucio Cabañas was the target of assassination uh, of the state police forces. Um, they, he, they, seven, eight people die. He manages to escape up into the mountains, and that's what launches his career as a guerrilla fighter. Um, a, a couple months later, there's a horrible massacre of campesinos in Acapulco. They try to take over their own union headquarters. There's gunmen in there, and they massacre dozens, right? And there, so there's a, there's this idea in Coso Guerrero of a. I remember uh, one of the guys I interviewed, Eladio Messino, talks about how there was so much rage and vengeance in the air, and there's this, there was this idea, this this sentiment that people wanted to come down from the campesino communities in the mountains into these uh, municipal capital cities and just wipe people out with their machetes. That's why I refer to it divine violence campesino style, but um, very different form of, of violence in, in contrast to what these guerrilleros like Genaro Vasquez and Lucio Cabañas were preaching. Right? They were they were trying to get something more organized, um, you know, influenced influenced by local regional traditions of rebellion, but obviously they're also involved. They're reading about what's going on in the global south during the sixties and seventies. Cuba figures prominently, Vietnam figures prominently. Lucio Cabañas was following what was going on with the Chicano Civil Rights Movement and the, and the Black Civil Rights Movement in the U.S. Um, uh, but their their uh, their political base, even if they were leftist by the late '60s, it's always nationalist and it's always based on this more radical um, imagining of Mexican history. So Regis Debray has a great quote about um, Fidel read Jose Martí before he read Lenin, right? So I would say Genaro Vázquez and Lucio Cabañas read. Jose Maria Morelos before they read Marx or Che. Um, they, there's always like this radical nationalism at the heart of their, of their political projects. Um, what they have to convince people on is on the style of, of, of revolution, right? So Lucio talks about how it was really hard for him to convince people to go up into the mountains and to live like, quote unquote, brutitos, brutes, 
in the in the wild um, because he figured guerrilla warfare was the most appropriate means of of actually translating political revolution into some sort of, of armed violence. And at some level, the challenge is uniting people in this diverse landscape, as you noted, that's separated just geographically yeah. and historically long separated. That's fascinating. Can, so, and sort of, I don't want to take too much time here, but sort of thinking about longer term legacies, can you talk a little bit about Socabana says being alive? Um, maybe a little bit about Don Chon, who you finished the work with, and then also about um, why we talk about um, Ayotzinapa today. Sure. Obviously, it's it's back in the news to some degree. Um, yeah, so I think so. This idea that the, the past is is in the it, you know very vivid and alive in, in Guerrero. Um, you know, Guerrero, I think, is such a rich area of political ideas and memories. But it's also uh, Armando Bartra called it a giant cemetery, right? It's like quite literally, right? Not figuratively, right? So um, there's clandestine graves everywhere. Um, so these political ideas and subversive memories, um, these subversive political projects, they remain. But um, something else that remains is the experience of terror, right? So Don Chon, this, um, this elderly campesino man who I interviewed, his, his name is Ascension Messino Rosas. His son was a, a rural school teacher who had been a student of Lucio Cabañas, then became a school teacher in his own right, then became a member of El Partido de los Pobres with Lucio. And he was one of the last three guerrilla fighters that died fighting with Lucio Cabañas on December 2nd, 1974, what the military did was um, Don Chon's son and another guerrillero were buried in clandestine graves. There was one guerrillero who survived, the 15-year-old Marcelo Juarez, and we have photographs of him being detained at that very moment by the military. He's loaded onto a helicopter and we never hear from him again. Um, And then Lucio's body goes through an autopsy. There's a video of the autopsy. Um, but the next day, December 3rd, uh, at six in the morning, he's buried in some sort of clandestine grave in Atoyac. Um, Don Chon talked to me about how he personally experienced torture for a week at a military base in Acapulco. Um, and something that I talk about in the book is how they used to beat him pretty savagely. And they would tell him, you're the father of the guerrilla. And he would say, I'm the father of one guerrilla, not the whole lot, cabrones. Um, and I was, you know his method of, of resisting. But he talks about how the fact that his son was disappeared, he didn't know what, where the body was. Um, he figured he, he knew, he knew what had happened to his son. There was no closure. Right. And that's the purpose of disappearing people. All the literature that people have produced on Argentina and Chile, for instance, they, 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 they come to that conclusion. It's a, it's a terror tactic designed to prolong the pain, but it's also the, um, designed to discipline the people who are alive. Um, when Don Chon was released by the military, they put him on a bus. They gave him a couple of, of pesos and they, and they told him, behave and go to work. Right? I mean, that's the message that the military wanted to, to pass on. Um, but he told me, right, like I, he just needed closure. Um, well, in 2006, they found the remains of his son um, and they returned to him the remains of his son. And um, they returned the remains of his son in two dingy old beat up plastic boxes and they just pretty much just shoved it in his face and he, he asked like which one is my son right? not, not knowing that, that the remains of his son were in both boxes um, and, he, and he told me how that was an extremely painful experience but at the very least he knew right so that allowed him to kind of move uh, other people expressed this, this idea that time stopped when their loved one was disappeared 
um, Tita Radilla, who I talk about in the book, right? Her father, Rosendo Radilla, who was a longtime campesino activist. He wrote, he was a corridista. He wrote corridos. He was disappeared because he wrote corridos. Um, he was taken off a bus by a soldier. He asked the soldier, what, what did I do wrong? Um, the guy says, you're the one writing corridos about Genaro Vasquez. And uh, Rosendo responds by saying, is that a crime? And, and the soldier says, no, but get the chingaste. So you're fucked anyway. Um, so for Tita and her family, like, and and her brother who was there on the bus, he witnessed. He was 11, year old, 11 years old at the time. He witnessed this exchange. That was the last time. He's the last one to see his father. The time, like, stopped. Right, the past, like the past, moved along into the present, and they can't move forward, right? Because they don't know what what happened, right? And this ha- this is something that's shared by hundreds, perhaps thousands, of guerrillas. Is this idea that the past continues to invade in the present? It's never really gone away. Um, now it's just so much worse, though, right? When I was doing my research, I mean, I thought that the Guerra Sucia and, and Guerrero, and then more broadly in Mexico, the Dirty War, was something horrific, but you know, what we witnessed in Mexico since 2006 is the only viable comparison is the Mexican Revolution in terms of body count, right? 100,000 people dead, 30,000 disappeared. Um, and we talk about Ayotzinapa and these 43 students who were who were disappeared. One of them, one of these young men who was disappeared, his name was Cuberto Ortiz Ramos. He's a nephew of Lucio Cabanas. Mm. Um, this young man lost his uncle Lucio in 1974. He lost another Cabanas uncle in 1974. And now he's disappeared, right? So this idea in Guerrero that the past is always there, it's never gone away. The fact that after these um, poor students were disappeared, you have guerrilla movements who are still in Guerrero announced communiques and talking about how they're going to form special um, hit squad groups to take out the, the people who were responsible for the disappearance of the, of the, of the students. Um, it's, it's, the past remains so vibrant and alive, poignantly and tragically, but now it's just so much worse. Like, it's hard for me to comprehend the scale of, of, of violence and ferocity in Guerrero. When I did this research in the 70s, which is horrific on its own right, and now it's hard for me to understand the level of it. Um, you know, one of the one of the students who was... Aside from the 43 students, there were more who were taken. And there was another young man, Julio Cesar Mondragon. They found his body on September 27th, the day after they disappeared the students. They found his body with his face had been ripped off. Right. So they tortured this young man. They, they tore his face off, most likely when he was alive. They took out his, his eyes and cut off his ears. A, a 19, 20, 21-year-old student. Like... I, I can kind of understand what the Mexican military was doing in the 70s, right? Mm-hmm. In the, in, within the logic of counterinsurgency, as horrific as it might be. But then I read about Julio Cesar and I'm like, you know, struggling to comprehend that level of, of violence. Um, it's, it's, it's horrific. Um, but you see, you, you saw the response that people in Guerrero, right? They, these students and these teachers are burning down buildings. They've attacked the Congress building, the state Congress building in Guerrero. They're not going to go away. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're seeing a really combustible situation and get it building up. Um, and a lot of these groups, whether it's the students, the teachers, um, these community police forces, they're all drawing from these past instances of mobilization and, and political activism to kind of, um, in terms of organizational suggestions, but also political suggestions as well. 
Well, in as I mean, I think as you very carefully illustrate that it's 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 not the past, right? Yeah. That these are lived experiences um, that are ongoing, and you know, for lack of a better word, there isn't any sort of closure. Yeah. Um, even in you know identifying what happened to people, it's the whole point that disappeared. Yeah, well, no, it's it's you can't it's there is no closure, right? And that it, and it's looking it's there's a tragic aspect to this history, but I think that that tragedy is characteristic of most history. It's just it's we've become you know history as a discipline hasn't completely shed its positivism and its linear structure, right? Um, I think Guerrero is one of these powerful places that completely contradicts that type of history. Well, Alex, I want to thank you um, for sharing your time today. This is a book that is um, important, obviously, for contextualizing Mexico during the Dirty Wars um, across Latin America, but also illustrating how um, how it operated at the local level in Guerrero. But I think more importantly, for bringing out sort of the human texture um, and um, for the hum- human and humane qualities that um, we should all be sensitive to. Um, and Clearly, in your own thinking and the discussion here about how this is sort of omnipresent for Mexico and all the more important to understand today. So I want to thank you uh, for chatting today and um, look forward to, to the next projects. So thank Thanks, you, Alex. man. I really appreciate you. Thank you for talking to me today. Take care.